Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Stockwell service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Thanks, Trev. Uh, so yeah, let me add my welcome to you. It's really great to have you here, especially on this, our third anniversary, a day there where we want to kind of look back and look forward at what God has done and what we are hoping that he will do. Um, maybe it would be helpful just to give a, like a brief bit of context for those of you who are new to Christchurch. Um, so Christchurch London was started in 2004 um, by a group of people predominantly from Birmingham who, who were living in Birmingham at the time. That was where David and Philippa Stroud were leading a church. Um, and uh, Jackie had been part of their church throughout university in Birmingham. Um, she came down to Brighton to marry me, which is very nice of her. And then we were thinking about what to do with the next stage of our life, wondering where to go, thinking about maybe going to Birmingham to be part of the church there. And I remember I was uh, working on a building site, and I got a call from David Stroud saying, we're moving to London to start a new church. Would you like to come with us? And we said yes pretty much immediately. This like, felt like the right thing to be doing. So we started praying about jobs and houses. Um, within a matter of weeks, Jack's got headhunted to a job in London. So she started the commute from Brighton to London. And then we started looking for a house with another friend of ours who's also moving to London to be part of the church. We found uh, a flat that was kind of perfect for the three of us just around the corner from the Strouds. We put in an offer. Um, that was all going well. And then we didn't quite realize that London prices were so much more expensive. Um, you have to do six weeks um, here rather than four weeks in terms of deposit. And so we were money short. And we were kind of over the weekend thinking, if we don't put money down, then this is it. We're going to lose this flat. And we were praying about it because that was pretty much all we could do at that point. And on Sunday, I got a call from one of my best friends who said, we just deposited £500 into your account to help you move to London. Hope that's okay. And we said, thank you very much. And we moved to London. And from then, it really did feel like we lived with this conviction that this is where God wanted us to be. So the job moved, the house, it felt like we were supposed to be here. And I have to say that that conviction hasn't left us in almost 15 years of being here. And so Christchurch has moved around a lot in its history. Uh, we started in the Strand Palace Hotel. Um, that was our first ever meeting. Uh, we then spent um, a few months in the uh, International Students' House near Great Portland Street, meeting every other week. And then in October of that year, we started meeting uh, weekly in the new Connaught Rooms. They're now the Grand Connaught Rooms. They've upgraded a little bit. We were there for a year, and then we jumped back south uh, over the river to Venopolis, which was a wine museum. We met there for a year, jumped back again over the water to Piccadilly. Uh, so we met in the Piccadilly Theatre, just behind Piccadilly Circus, for a few years. And then we found ourselves at the Mermaid Theatre. And it was there that we grew into two services, a morning and an evening service. A morning and an evening service. And it was a few years into that that I felt, or actually we felt, that maybe my life wasn't to be in the fire brigade. I was a firefighter for 10 years in London, but should be in full-time paid church work, which is a whole other story that if you want to be bored, I can tell you at some other point. Um, but anyway, in 2015, we felt God speaking to us as the leadership of the church that maybe God has something different for us, that maybe there, our future was about starting new services across London, that we will be this one church that meets in different locations. And we had grown communities in the east of London around Bethnal Green, grown community here. And so we started to think that maybe God giving, was giving us a vision for this kind of new way of, for us of doing church. So we take the strength of, and the size and the resources and the kind of the citywide vision of a city church. And we would express that in local communities. Communities where people could really get to know one another and live alongside one another, raise their families together, more easily connect into and belong to. 
And so on January the 17th, 2016, after an incredibly generous offering in the autumn before, it really was quite remarkable. We started three services on one day, which if you're thinking of doing that, don't. It was crazy and it was a lot of work, but it worked out, we think. Um, so we started here in Stockwell. Um, then the central service kept on meeting in the Mermaid Theatre, so two services in the morning, and then we had two services in the afternoon as well, one in Covent Garden, one in Bethnal Green, um, which was followed this last September by our fifth service in Sutton. Which brings us to today. One church meeting in five locations across London, all united by a common vision, this common vision that we would be for the flourishing of the city, the cultural, spiritual, and social renewal, not only of kind of our parts of London, but the whole of London. And joined by three of our central values, that we will be a church community that would be engaged with everything empowered by the Spirit, which is just kind of like a shorthand way of saying that we want to work tirelessly to help people find faith in Jesus and find new life in him. And we want to help people work out how that faith impacts every part of their life. We think that God is interested in every part of life that we are interested in. And that we want to do all of that out of the resurrection power of Jesus that is available to us by the Holy Spirit. And Jackie and I really couldn't think of any place in the world that we would rather be, that we'd rather be doing church with and family life with. We really do love this great city. We love actually this part of this great city the most. We have been here for 15 years now almost, and South London has definitely become home for us. We can't imagine raising our family anywhere else. We are two girls. We can't imagine doing church anywhere else but here which is why we are putting roots down here and planning on staying here indefinitely. And we are asking pretty much everyone we meet to prayerfully consider doing the same thing. Um, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, and it has been amazing to think about over these last three years and just recognize what a privilege it is to be part of this community. Um, it's a privilege to hear so many of your stories of where you have come from, so many of your hopes and dreams of where you are hoping to go. It's amazing to see up close people who are working out faith in London, who are going through good times and tough times, but in the midst of that, keep on loving and serving God. And we get kind of a special look into so many people's lives, and it is incredible. And we have seen kind of sacrificial, self-giving love happen in kind of a thousand different ways over these three years. When Jackson and I stopped to think about this incredible community and the passion that people have here for God and for the heart that there is for building real strong, deep community that lasts and then inviting other people into it and all the different ways that people are taking what God has given them in order to be a blessing, in order to work for the common good, we truly are humbled that God has called us to be leaders here and we are truly thankful that we get to do church with you guys. But as true as that all is, and it really is true, I'd be lying if I said that this right here is enough for us. This right here, this community that loves God and is working out how to love one another and how to raise their kids in London and to kind of take what God has given them and bless other people, this is incredible. And we thank God for it and we don't take it for granted. But this is not enough for us because we live in a city that is full of people who don't yet know Jesus, who haven't yet had their lives completely transformed, turned upside down or turned the right way up, whoever you want to think about that, by his incredible love. 
There is a city out there full of people who have this distorted idea of who God is, of who Jesus is. And they either think that he is completely irrelevant to their lives or they think they kind of know who he is and their life would be better off without him in it. There are people all around us who don't know that Jesus is patient and he is kind, that he isn't easily angered, that he keeps no record of wrongs, that he always perseveres with us, that he never fails us. There are people here who haven't experienced his love in kind of this real and tangible way, almost touchable, who don't know what it is like to be completely known to the very depths of who you are and yet loved completely anyway, who don't know what it is like to live with the smile of the Father over their lives, who don't realise that there is a power available from outside of themselves to equip them to live a life of love and courage and perseverance and faithfulness. And we would say that there is a dissatisfaction in us, a holy dissatisfaction, a God-given dissatisfaction that we are not seeing more people come to know and love and live for Jesus. And that is partly what this whole Awakened series is about. It's because there is this desire in us that we too would be privileged to live through a season where we see dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of people come to know and love Jesus, who come to experience the power of God in their own lives. In the very first week of this series, Liam spoke from a story in Genesis chapter 2. It was about um, Isaac, who was redigging the wells that his father Abraham had dug years before. And those wells had either been filled in by enemies or they just kind of fallen in over years. And Liam used that as a metaphor for the church in the UK. That there have been significant wells dug here. Significant moves of God that have resulted in real and lasting spiritual life coming to a place, sometimes for decades at a time. And Liam talked about our growing desire to kind of redig those wells, to see that again to see the life of God flow freely where it had once before. Our growing desire is that the prayer of the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk would live deeply in our hearts. He said, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. And over the last few weeks as we have been thinking about that, we've heard kind of different stories mentioned of uh, thousands of people finding faith and life in Jesus, whole communities being transformed. And the thing that has stood out to me is that how many, so many of those I think, stories that we've heard about have happened within a few miles of where we are sitting right now. That we are meeting, that we are living in a place full of wells just waiting to be redug. So last week, David mentioned the Jeffreys brothers. Uh, George and Stephen Jeffries uh, were two Welsh miners. Um, I think, yeah, George particularly with incredible hair, which you can't quite see there. Actually, this is kind of how I want to look when I'm older, I think. That's what I'm going to go for. But these guys, um, they came to faith in the Welsh revival at the turn of the 20th century. And a few years after coming to faith, at the age of just 20, George had a dramatic encounter with God. So he would say that he was instantly healed from facial paralysis. And in that moment, he didn't think much of kind of uh, the charismatic, the spiritual gifts. And it was this moment that kind of changed that for him. Like the power of God is real. The power of God for healing is real. And he decided that from that point on, at just 20, to spend the rest of his life telling people about Jesus and then praying for them to be healed. 
And in 1924, he went to visit America to see firsthand the remarkable ministry of a woman called Amy Semple McPherson. Um, she was a French-Canadian. Um, she started out with the um, Salvation Army, just doing all she could to help people in need. Um, and it was very clear early on that she had this incredible preaching gift. When she spoke about Jesus, people listened. And she moved to L.A. and she started the first modern megachurch. Like, so many people came to hear her. Over her ministry, tens of thousands of people gave their life to Jesus. And tens of thousands of people um, reported being healed and, like, they served the poor all over. Um, and so George and... Uh, Stephen went out to see her, and they were so impacted by her ministry. Um, and her, what she called was the, the four-square gospel. She said that Jesus is our saviour, he is our healer, he is the one that baptises us in the Holy Spirit, and he is the coming king. And like that was her, uh, the message that she preached for decades and decades, a huge church um, called, uh, what was the church called? The Angelus Temple, which actually still exists today. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard of the Dream Centre in L.A., this is part of that now. So they're like a hundred year heritage in that place, which is incredible. And so like this is the message that she preached and George was so impacted by that that he came back and he took kind of the four square gospel into his own ministry and he went around, spent the rest of his life preaching about Jesus being saviour and healer and baptizer and the coming king. Praying for people to be healed and filled with the Holy Spirit and seeing tens of thousands of people find faith. And George Jeffries is considered today to be the greatest British evangelist since George Whitfield and John Wesley, which actually, I don't know if you know this, but in 1739, those guys preached down in Kennington Park to 40,000 people without amplification, which is pretty good going. And um, George Jeffrey named his church movement Elim. And do you want to guess where the first UK-based Elim church was? It started in 1921 in Clapham, just down the road in Clapham, as Tom Williams pointed out to me last week, there's even a Jeffreys Road named after George Jeffreys, just a few minutes from here. And from their Clapham base, George and the Elim Church started churches all across London, started all across the UK. They founded a Bible college to train people for ministry again in Clapham. Um, from 1927 to the eve of the Second World War, they hired the Royal Albert Hall every Easter Monday for these huge celebrations. 10,000 people would show up to celebrate Jesus on Easter Monday. They baptised loads of people there. Um, this picture that Dave showed um, last week, um, this is 20,000 people who have come to the Crystal Palace, before it burnt down, obviously, um, to celebrate what God had done through the Elim movement over the last 21 years. Isn't it incredible to think all of that happened right here? Tens of thousands of people finding faith in Jesus happened right here. Lord God, we have heard of your fame we stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time. Make them known. And then how about that? This is not our only part of our spiritual heritage. A few years before George Jeffrey started the Elim Church, a few miles east in Peckham, Reverend Thomas Kwame Bren Wilson was starting the first black majority church in the UK, a church that helped to start the Pentecostal movement here in London and then throughout the UK. Um, Reverend Bram Wilson was born to a wealthy family in Ghana. He emigrated to London in 1901, working as a businessman, as a general merchant, just like his dad did. And a few years after arriving here in 1906, he and a few friends started a church in Peckham, the Sumner Road Chapel. And they began to experience the presence and the power of God. Now, they say that Pentecostalism is a kind of traced back to the Azusa Street revival that happened in California in actually the exact same year, 1906, that this Sunday Road Chapel was started. 
One of the key figures in that revival was a guy called William Joseph Seymour. He was a son of former slaves, and he had this burning kind of idea that the gospel was for everyone, that the Holy Spirit was to be poured out on all people, that there was a oneness that came from being a Christian. And so he built this community that was hungry after the presence and power of God, kind of thousand flocked to him um, in his ministry, but also built this community that cut across racial divides, which obviously, like early 1900s in America, there were a few of those. And he built this community of black and white, of rich and poor, all together. And actually, Pentecostalism is founded on this kind of pouring out of the spirit, but also this oneness this strong sense of oneness that brings together people of different backgrounds into one community. And this is exactly what happened in the Sumner Road Chapel as well. Um, that they, were, managed, they may, um, were able to build there a diverse church. Actually, people from all over the empire at that point came and they found a community to belong to here in London. Wouldn't that be an amazing spiritual well to dig up again? A well of spiritual life that releases unity between people who are different to one another. That cuts across social divides of race, of ethnicity, of class, of age. That takes seriously the implication of the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 4. That there is one body, one spirit, just as we have been called to one hope when we were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This spirit of oneness. Lord God, we have heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. And then if we travel a little further back in time and a little further north, we get to Elephant and Castle and we get to Charles Spurgeon and the Metropolitan Tabernacle in the 1800s. At the age of just 19, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who grew this amazing beard when he was older, um, he uh, was hired as the senior pastor at 19 of this church. And for the next 38 years until his death in 1992, he led that church community, uh, sometimes preaching up to 13 times in a week. And Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. He had this ability to connect with the working class and with the middle class together. His preaching was so popular that after three years, he became the most famous preacher in the whole of the Western world. And despite already sending out groups of people to start two new church congregations, their church building became too small for them. And so they just built a new one. And wouldn't that be amazing? Back in the day where you had land to build. So they built the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which could hold 5,000 people sitting and 1,000 people standing. It was the largest kind of non-traditional church building in the world at that time. And every time Spurgeon stood up to preach, his desire first and foremost was to lead people to life in Jesus. And over his lifetime, 12,000 people found faith and joined their church community. I mean, that's not counting like the countless others who found faith through his ministry. Um, stenographers would take down his sermons every time he preached, and then they would sell them the next day for a penny. And it's said that there are 50 million copies of Spurgeon's sermons sold in his lifetime. That's in his lifetime, translated into 40 different languages. There are even stories of people buying food wrapped up in kind of uh, copies of his preaches and reading a page and coming under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that they needed Jesus in their life and giving their lives to Jesus. I mean, this guy was incredible. His ministry was incredible, but it was the message that was the thing. And next to preaching, Spurgeon's greatest passion was church planting. He set up a college um, 
again in Adelphine Castle, the trained people for ministry. Between 1853 and 1867, graduates of Spurgeon College started 27 new churches in London. Just 14 years, they started 27 new churches. And when I say they started churches, they built churches. Then if you guys know Stockwell Baptist Church, that was one of the churches planted from uh, Elephant and Castle. Um, you can tell because it looks exactly the same as the Metropolitan Tabernacle from the outside. The well that Spurgeon dug was a well that gave life for decades. For almost 40 years, he ministered here in this city because of his love for the people of this great city. And Spurgeon didn't only help people find new life in Jesus, he also worked for the common good more broadly. Spurgeon thought that people who had been changed by the good news of Jesus should go on to do good to those around them. And so amongst other things, he started a children's charity, which is still going strong today. One of the first things that charity did was to build an orphanage for 500 boys. And as any of you with kids who play on the mound out the back know, this is the site of that first orphanage. This, um, there was an orphanage here for almost 70 years on this site before it moved out to Kent. And like hundreds and hundreds of kids came through. Uh, kids without parents during kind of the late stage of the Industrial Revolution, left with nothing, and Spurgeon and his charity welcomed them in and gave them a new life. See, he wasn't just interested in spiritual renewal, but also in cultural and social renewal. That's handy, isn't it? An idea that was exemplified by a group known as the Clapham Sect. So towards the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, a group of mainly wealthy Anglicans who had moved from Oxford and Cambridge, where they went to university, found themselves in London for their careers and ended up kind of congregating around Clapham, ended up going to Holy Trinity Clapham at the time that John Venn was the vicar. And this group formed a community determined to use the privilege, the opportunities, and the gifts that God had given them to work together for social reform most famously by working for decades for the abolition of the slave trade and of slavery in general throughout the British Empire. Now, if you've heard of the Clapham sect, then you probably think straight away of William Wilberforce. We tend to equate Wilberforce with the abolition of slavery. Um, it wasn't just him. Like, there was 20 people in that group, around 20, who kind of lived together in community, who shared life with one another and spurred one another on to love and to good works who gave themselves first to God, then to one another, and then to this mission that they were on. And one of those groups was a woman called Hannah Moore, who was an author, a poet, a playwright, a philanthropist. She played her part in the abolition movement by using the gifts that God had given her, by using her art. So, for example, in Slavery, a poem, she described in, in detail a mistreated, enslaved woman being separated from her children. She connected her readers, maybe for the first time with people that at that time were considered property. She managed to kind of create empathy in people here that actually they want to do something about the slavery problem. Hannah Moore, through her work, openly called into question the British uh, Empire's role in the slave trade. And it was said that her writings gave the abolition movement the public voice that it needed. Now, I don't even want to imply that it was Hannah Moore and Wilberforce and the Clapham sect that single-handedly managed to abolish slavery. There were dozens of other abolitionist movements, many of them led by former slaves. There were economic, economic factors involved, not least the dozens of slave revolts that were making slavery more, uh, less and less profitable and kind of huge economic changes in the market. But nevertheless, the Clapham sect are an incredible example of a group of people who committed themselves to this mission that was greater than themselves. And over decades, they were able to do far more together than they could have done apart. 
They affected not just the slave trade, but played a significant role in making justice and equality and fairness part of the cultural morality of the time. Like we are living in kind of the fruit of that. The things that we take for granted now started somewhere. And these guys started a lot of that. Historian Stephen and Michael Tompkins said of them, the ethos of Clapham became the spirit of the age. Lord God, we have heard of your fame. We stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day, in our time, make them known. And this is what we are asking God for, that he would open up the wells and pour out his life upon the places where we live and the places where we work, that we would see dozens, if not hundreds, find new life in Jesus, that we here would experience more of his presence and more of his power, that we here would see people regularly healed, that we here would be able to build a deep and lasting community that cuts across social divides, that we would use all of the privileges and the opportunities and the gifts and the resources God has given us to do good to the city, that we could start new services and new church communities, that this community, by the grace of God, would exist for decades to come, that we would leave a legacy of fruitfulness in this part of London. This is what we feel called to pray for at this time, and this is what we are asking you to join us in pursuing. Our invitation to you is that for as long as we are here together in London, let's give ourselves to God and to one another and doing something of eternal significance that we together would give ourselves to redigging these wells until we see the life of Jesus overflowing again. That we will give ourselves to helping people find new life in Jesus. That is really on our heart at the moment. How do we do that? And actually, if you have a particular passion or interest in helping people right at the beginning of their faith journey, right at the beginning of kind of exploring who Jesus is, then we would love to chat to you. Come and find me or Jackie afterwards. Email Jackie at ChristChurchLondon.org because we want to get you guys in a room together. And we want to pray and we want to plan about how we can best help our friends, our neighbours, our co-workers, our family, the people that we meet, find new life in Jesus. But I guess in saying all of this, what we're not asking us to do is just to try harder. You know, just to, to, to do more, try harder. We are actually inviting us all into a deeper relationship with God first and foremost. Because that isn't just where it starts. That's where it starts and that's where it ends and that's kind of all in between as well. We want to be a community that hungers after God first and foremost. That out of a deep security in his love for us out of a heart captivated by him and all that he has done, that firstly, we will be changed, that we will be changed, and then through us being changed, we will see our communities changed too. Which is why before we go on to praying for what we might want God to do in the future, which is what we will do later on, before we ask God to kind of redig those wells and think about things like hopes and dreams in our hearts, what we're going to do first is we're going to focus upon Jesus. We're going to focus upon what he has already done in his death and in his resurrection. We're going to remember how each one of us needs a saviour. 
that all of us need someone to save us from the trajectory that we are, we're currently on. We're going to remember how each one of us is in need of a healer. That we are in need of someone to restore us to the way that our loving creator intended us to be. Physically, emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, we are in need of healing. We're going to remember how each one of us needs a power from outside of ourselves to enable us to live lives like this. Lives of love, lives of courage and perseverance. And we're going to remember that all of this is available to us because of the life, death and resurrection of the Son of God. The Son of God who is now seated at the right hand of the Father, who is worthy of all of our praise, all of our adoration, who is worthy of our every breath, who loves us and will one day return to make everything new. And to do that, we're going to sing the song that David mentioned last week about the Welsh anthem, the Welsh love anthem of the revival called uh, Here is Love, Vast as an Ocean. And we're going to sing that. So maybe the band want to come forward. And we're going to sing and we're going to remember this vast love that has come for us. And after we've sung this, we're going to take communion together. One of the markers of the people of God is that they gather together to remember together the significance of Jesus. And remember together that we are saved into community. We have one piece of bread to symbolize one body. One body broken for us, which we take into ourselves. And so we're going to take communion and just to say that if you are here this morning and you would say that you're still very much exploring faith, Maybe kind of the stuff I'm talking about, you're just hugely skeptical of any of that. Firstly, to say that you, are really, you really are welcome here. You do not have to believe anything that we believe to belong to this community and to be part of us. But just to be very upfront with you, I really hope that you do come to believe what I believe. Because Jesus really has. He's changed my life. I would be a very different person. I mean... <laughs> Like where I am now, like there's a long way to go. But without Jesus in my life, without knowing deep down that I am loved, without this power that has come to me, without knowing where I am headed, without any of that, my life would be so, so different. And so I am completely convinced that with Jesus in your life, like that is good news for you. And so my invitation is just as we sing, as we take communion, maybe just ask him about that. Maybe ask this Jesus that you're not sure is even there to reveal himself and his love to you. There are dozens of people in this room where that has happened already. We know thousands over London who would say, Jesus' love has changed my life. And so I just invite you to ask him the question this morning. And then we come and chat to me or one of um, the prayer team afterwards. We would love to pray with you. But why don't we stand? And we are going to sing together first and foremost about his love.